Kafka on the Shore, Chapter 37 We stop at a town to have a bite to eat and stock up on food and mineral water at a supermarket. Then drive up to the unpaved road through the hills and arrive at the cabin. Inside, it's exactly as I left it a week ago. I open the window to air the place, then store the food. I'm going to take a nap before I head back, Oshima says, nearly covering his face with his hands as he lets out a huge yawn. I didn't sleep well last night. He really must be exhausted because as soon as he gets under the covers and turns towards the wall, he's out. I make some coffee and pour it into a thermos for his drive back, then head back to the brook with aluminium pail to fill up on water. The forest hasn't changed a bit. The same smell of grasses, bird calls, babbling water in the brook, the rush of wind through the trees, the same shadows of rustling leaves. The clouds above me look really close. I feel nostalgic to see them again, for they have become a part of me. While Oshima sleeps, I sit on the porch, sip tea and read a book about Napoleon's 1812 invasion of Russia. Some 400,000 French soldiers lost their lives in that huge country in this massive pointless campaign. The battles themselves were awful, of course, but there weren't enough doctors or medical supplies. So most of the severely wounded soldiers were left to die in agony. More though froze to death or died of starvation, equally terrible ways to die. Sitting there on the porch, sipping hot herbal tea, birds whistling all around me, I try to picture the battlefield in Russia and these men trudging through blizzards. I get about a third of the way through the book and go and see if Oshima's okay. I know he's exhausted, but he's so quiet, it's as if he's not even there and I'm a little worried. But he's alright wrapped in the covers, breathing peacefully. I will. I walk over to the bedside and watch his sh- shoulders rising and falling gently. Standing there, I suddenly remember that he is a woman. Most of the time I forget that and think of him as a man, which is exactly what he wants, of course. When he's sleeping, he looks like he's gone back to being a woman. I go out to the porch again and pick up where I left off in the book. Back to a road outside Smolensk lined with frozen corpses. Oshima sleeps for a couple of hours. After he wakes up, he walks up out to the porch and looks at his car. The dusty, unpaved road has turned the green Miata almost white. He gives a big stretch and sits down next to me. It's the rainy season, he says, rubbing his eyes. But there's not much rain this year. If we don't get some soon, Takamatsu is going to run out of water. I venture a question. Does Miss Saiki know where I am? He shakes his head. No, I didn't tell her anything. She doesn't even know I have a cabin up here. It's better to keep her in the dark so she won't get mixed up in all this. The less she knows, the less she needs to hide. I nod. That's what I wanted to hear. She's got missed up in this enough before, Oshima says. She doesn't need this now. I told her about my father dying recently. I tell him how somebody murdered him. I left out the part about the police looking for me. 
She's pretty smart. Even if neither of us mentioned it, I get the feeling she's worked out most of what's going on. So if I tell her tomorrow that you had something you had to do and will be gone for a while and tell her hi from you, I doubt she'll quiz me about the details. Even if that's all I tell her, I know she'll just let it pass. I nod. But you want to see her, don't you? I don't reply. I'm not sure how to express it, but the answer isn't hard to guess. I do feel kind of sorry for you, Oshima says, but as I said, I think you two shouldn't see each other for a while. But I might never see her again, perhaps, Oshima admits after giving it some thought. This is pretty obvious, but until things happen, they haven't happened, and often things aren't what they seem. But how does Miss Saiki feel? Oshima narrows his eyes and looks at me. About what? I mean, if she knows she'll never see me again, does she feel the same about me as I feel about her? Oshima grins. Why are you asking me this? I have no idea, which is probably why I am asking you. Loving somebody, wanting them more than anything. It's all a new experience. The same with having somebody want me. I imagine you are confused and don't know what to do. I nod. Exactly. You don't know if she shares the same strong, pure feelings you have for her, Oshima says. I shake my head. It hurts to think about it. Oshima is silent for a time as he gazes at the forest, eyes narrowed. Birds are flitting from one branch to the next. His hands are clasped behind his head. I know how you feel, he finally says. But this is something you have to work out on your own. Nobody can help you. That's what love's all about, Kafka. You are the one having those wonderful feelings, but you have to go it alone as you wander through the dark. Your mind and body have to bear it all, all by yourself. It's after two when he gets ready to leave. If you divide up the food, he tells me, it should last you a week. I'll be back by then. If something comes up and I can't make it, I'll send my brother here with the supplies. He lives only about an hour away. I've told him about you being here, so no worries, okay? Okay. And as I told you, be extra cautious if you go into the woods. If you get lost, you'll never find your way out. I'll be careful. Just before the Second World War started, a large unit of Imperial troops carried out some training exercises here staging mock battles with the Soviet army in the Siberian forest. Did I tell you this already? No. Ah, seems that I forgot the most important thing, Oshima says sheepishly, tapping his temple. But this doesn't look like Siberian forests, I say. You're right. The trees here are all broadleaf types. The ones in Siberia would have to be evergreens. But I guess the military didn't worry too much about the details. The point was to march into the forest in full battle gear and conduct their war games. He pours a cup of coffee I made from the thermos, spoons in a dollop of sugar and seems pleased with the results. The military asked my grandfather to let them use the mountain for their training. And he said, by all means. Nobody else was using it after all. The unit marched up the road we drove here on, then they went into the forest. When the exercises were finished and they took the roll call though, they discovered that two soldiers were missing. They just disappeared, full battle gear and all, during the training, both brand new draftees. 
The army conducted a huge search, but the two soldiers were never, never turned up. Oshima takes another sip of coffee. To this day, nobody knows if they simply got lost or ran away. The forest around here is incredibly deep and there's hardly anything you could forage for food. I nod. There's another world that parallels our own and to a certain degree you're able to step into that other world and come back safely. As long as you're careful. But go past a certain point and you'll lose the path out. It's a labyrinth. Do you know where the idea of a labyrinth first came from? I shake my head. It was the ancient Mesopotamians. They pulled out animal in intestines, sometimes human intestines, I expect, and used the shape to predict the future. They admired the complex shape of the intestines. So the prototype for labyrinth is, in a word, guts, which means that the principle for the labyrinth is inside you, and that correlates to the labyrinth outside. Another metaphor, I say. That's right, a reciprocal metaphor. Things outside you are projections of what's inside you and what's inside you is a projection of what's outside. So when you step into the labyrinth outside you, at the same time, you're stepping into the labyrinth inside. Most definitely a risky business. Like Hansel and Gretel. Right, just like them. The forest has set a trap and no matter what you do, no matter how careful you are, some sharp-eyed birds are going to eat up all your breadcrumbs. I promise I'll be careful, I tell him. Oshima lowers the top on the Miata and climbs in. He puts on his sunglasses and rests his hand on the gear stick. The forest echoes with the sound of that familiar roar. He brushes back his hair, gives an abbreviated wave and is gone. Dust swirls around where he was but the wind soon carries it away. I go back to the cabin. I lie down on the bed he had been using and shut my eyes. Come to think of it, I didn't get much sleep last night either. The pillow and cover still show signs of Oshima having been there. Not him really, more like his sleep. I sink down in those signs. I've slept for half an hour when there's a loud thump outside the cabin. Like a tree branch had snapped and tumbled to the ground. The sound jolts me awake. I get up and walk out to the porch to investigate, but everything looks the same. Maybe this is some mysterious sound the forest makes from time to time. Or maybe it was a part of a dream. I can't tell one from the other. Until the sun sinks down in the west, I sit out on the porch reading my book. I make a simple meal and eat it in silence. After clearing away the dishes, I sink back in the old sofa and think about Miss Saiki. As Osima said, Miss Saiki is a smart person. Plus, she has her own way of doing things, the boy named Crow says. He's sitting next to me on the sofa, just as when we were in my father's study. She's very different from you, he tells me. She's very different from you. She's overcome all kinds of obstacles and not what you would call normal obstacles either. She knows all kinds of things you're clueless about. She's experienced a range of emotions you've never felt. The longer people live, the more they learn to distinguish what's important from what's not. She's had to make a lot of critical decisions and has seen the results. Again, very different from you. You're only a child who's lived in a narrow world and experienced very little. 
You've worked hard to become stronger and in some areas you've succeeded. That's a fact. But now you find yourself in a new world, in a situation where you've never been in before. It's all new to you, so no wonder you feel confused. No wonder you feel confused. One thing you don't understand very well is whether women have sexual desire. Theoretically, of course, they do. That much even you know. But when it comes to how this desire comes about, what it's like, you're lost. Your own sexual desire is a simple matter. But women's desire, especially Miss Psyche's, is a mystery. When she held you, did she feel the same physical ecstasy? Or is it something altogether different? The more you think about it, the more you hate being 15. You feel hopeless. If only you were 20. No, even 18 would be good. Anything but 15. You could understand better what her words and actions mean. Then you could respond the right way. You are in the middle of something wonderful. Something so tremendous, you may never experience it again. But you can't really understand how wonderful it is. That makes you impatient and that in turn leads to despair. You try to picture what she is doing right now. It's Monday and the library is closed. What does she do on her off days? You imagine her alone in her apartment. She does the laundry, cooks, cleans, goes out shopping. Each scene flashes into your imagination. The more you imagine, the harder it gets to sit still here. You want to turn into a daunting, dauntless crow and fly out of this cabin. Zoom out over these mountains, come to rest outside her apartment and gaze at her forever. Perhaps she drives to the library and goes into your room. She knocks but there is no answer. The door's unlocked. She discovers you are no longer there. The bed's made and all your things are gone. She wonders where you have disappeared to. Perhaps she waits a while for you to come back, sitting at the desk, hand in head in hands, gazing at Kafka on the shore. Thinking of the past that's enveloped in that painting. No matter how long she waits, though, you don't return. Finally, she gives up and leaves. She walks over to her golf in a car park and starts the engine. The last thing you want is to let her leave like this. You want to hold her and know that each and every movement of her body means. But you're not there. You're all alone in a place cut off from everyone. You climb into bed and turn off the light, hoping that she'll come to you in this room. It doesn't have to be the real Miss Psyche. The 15-year-old girl would be fine. It doesn't matter what form she takes, a living spirit, an illusion. But you have to see her, have to have her beside you. Your brain is so full of her, it's ready to burst. Your body about to explode into pieces. Still. No matter how much you want her to be here, no matter how long you wait, she never appears. All you hear is a faint rustle of wind outside, birds softly cooing in the night. You hold your breath, staring off into the gloom. You listen to the wind, trying to read something into it, straining to catch a hint of what it might mean. But all that surrounds you are different shades of darkness. Finally, you give up, close your eyes, and fall asleep.